Amen. Seriously, we are excited about that barbecue. Jensen, you have like just the power of joy in you. Like you get us excited about everything you announce. So we are heading over there right after this. I hope you came hungry. If you didn't bring a change of clothes, well, you're wear that's what you're wearing for kickball. So, um, you know, maybe you brought some change of clothes. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, today, as I was even getting ready this morning, I began thinking of critical days, critical days. You've heard that phrase. I had never heard it put this way until I was a college student, like back in the dark ages. I remember a guy saying, everyone gets only a handful of critical days in their life. It might be three, it might be five. They are days that you experience. Maybe you've had one or two of these already. Days that you experience and something happens on that day. It's a conversation, maybe it's an encounter with God. It might just be with someone else, but something happens. And from that moment on, your life's different. You go a different direction. You're known for something different. They mark you and they impress you deeply. I've had a number of them. The day of my salvation, my senior year in high school, I went to church not interested in pretty much anything except the girl I was there with. I was listening to a message. My heart had begun to warm to the things of God. I was distracted and when God got my attention, there was no one in the room except me. That's how it felt. And surrendering my life to Jesus set me on a path that's changed everything. But they're not always that big. Sometimes they're just as significant, but they come through a different person. Like the critical day I had with Jenny's dad about four years later. When he sat me down and said, Paul, I get it. You broke up with Jenny a bunch of years ago and that was really hard and really painful for both of you. But now you're basically dating her and not calling it that. Now I can spot those guys like a mile away. <laughs> and I had great intentions. I didn't want to go through that pain again, you know, and, and I didn't want her to go through that pain again. So he said this, Paul, you're like the college guy who goes away to college and then comes home and has a girl on the line. He goes, you get everything you want and you don't give her what she needs most. And in my head, I'm thinking, what's that? And he said, commitment. He goes, a woman wants to be claimed. She wants to know, you're mine, I'm yours, like we're together. And he goes, you're more mature now. If it doesn't work out, I get it. You'll move on, you'll be okay. But you need either to give her the commitment she deserves as a woman, or you need to get out of her life. And he loved me. He wasn't trying to get rid of me. That was a critical day. And it wasn't long after I was pursuing her in marriage. It had changed something in me. You've maybe had a critical day. Maybe today will be one for you. We're going to read about a guy who has a very critical day with God. Maybe his first critical day coming way later in life. He's different after this. And today, God might do something mysterious in your own soul and it's a critical day for you. Open up your Bible to Genesis 28. That's where we're at. We've been moving through this book. God is clearly the hero of the book of Genesis. As soon as we try and extol any given character, they just flop in front of our faces. So God's the hero. He is writing a story. And from chapter 12 on, God has been revealing himself to a number of people, promising a covenant that will bless all nations. Land, ascendance, and blessing. He starts with a guy named Abraham. Abraham doesn't deserve it. God's lavishing his blessing on him. He moves on to his son, 
Isaac. Isaac doesn't deserve it. God is lavishing his blessing on his life. But now we move to Jacob. And interestingly, up to this point, we don't ever see Jacob actually strongly pursuing God on his own. This is a critical day for him. And the question I found myself asking, even as I prepared, is, is this faith yours and is it alive? Because look, you might have your mom's nose or your dad's eyes or your uncle's height. You might have gotten something from your parents, but here's what you didn't get, their faith, if they have faith. And there's a critical question going on in Jacob's world. I get it, Abraham walked with God, Isaac walked with God. What about you, Jacob? What's going to be true of your life? And what about us? Is this our faith? And is this faith alive? Is it vibrant? Can you sense it? Is it showing itself? Or are you just a church attender? It's a critical day in Jacob's life, and I think it will be in ours. A quick review, these last couple weeks, man, we've seen it. Esau, the two brothers, Esau and Jacob, even though Esau was born first, he sold his birthright. This guy was impulsive. He was irreverent, immoral. The scriptures fill his caricature in. He chooses immediate pleasure, a bowl of soup for the blessing of God, a birthright that meant material blessing and honor also. Now, Jacob and his mom, just last week, Stephen taught about, they, they kind of tricked dad Isaac, who was probably about blind at this point, and got that blessing, prayed for on him. And now we enter the story with Esau. He's so angry that this blessing had gone to the other brother. He's, he can only console himself with this thought, I'm gonna kill him. And so Rachel Quick comes to the rescue and says, Jacob, get out of town or I'm gonna lose you both. You're, you're, you're gonna die as well. Genesis 28, one through five says this. So Isaac, the father, summoned Jacob, the son, blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite girl. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's uh, father. Marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you become an assemblies of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. This begins with this instruction, do not marry a Canaanite girl. Why? I mean... Hey, you might buy local, shop local. Like, why not marry someone local? <laughs> Come on, what's up with this one? Don't marry a Canaanite girl. Well, here's the deal, we gotta remember that his dad, when he was like getting to be marriageable age, you know, they, they sent him all the way back to their homeland. This is like 550 miles. This isn't a car ride, this is a long foot march. That's just like Google mapping. That's like from walking from here to like Nashville almost. I mean, it's like, this is a long walk. That's what they did and God provided. Why did they go back to their own people? Simple. They knew that to marry locally would be to mix their family with people who were idolaters, people who would cause them to compromise morally, spiritually. And then also there would be a sense of obligation to the inhabitants of this land. They're like, no, no, no. We are thinking of the covenant. Go all the way back, like, like I did. Go all the way back to those people. And from among this extended family, you will find your bride. Go at once. And so he does. And any idea, by the way, this shocked me, how old 
Jacob is at this point? I didn't do the math on this. I was, there was a Bible commentary that starts tracking backwards from the back of Genesis. Jacob, listen, could have been 77 when he left going to look for a bride. This was as much of an effort to like keep the family lineage alive, you know, like get a bride, but listen, we're gonna have kids, get going. 77, it reminds me of that Disney Pixar movie Up, you know, it's like time to leave home, you know, like maybe not with balloons, but like this guy was heading out later in life on his way to look for a bride. This had not been the path of Esau. Real quickly, from the previous chapter, it'll be up on the screen, Genesis 26, 34, and 35, the Bible records when Esau was 40 years old, he took as his wives, Judith, daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Basemith, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They made life bitter for Isaac and for Rebekah. So Esau had chosen a different path. And honestly, Jacob and Esau are like this case in point example of, of two brothers who hit a fork in the road and go different ways. And this happens in families sometimes. Honestly, we have some of our dearest family friends who have a youngest daughter who has chosen a path to love Jesus, to honor him, to walk with him. And then a couple other girls who have chosen a path that's just heartbreaking. As you look at the life of Esau and you go, yeah, immoral, irreverent, you know, those, I mean, it's the grief they carry. And honestly, if you're not a parent yet, you'll realize it someday, you're, you're only as happy as your saddest child, and they carry a weight in their hearts. Well, this was Esau's path. He went down that path. And look, it's true that young marriages typically argue about three things, sex, money, and in-laws. Just pick one. Sometimes they're in different orders. Young marriages often argue about those things. Moms and dads often find themselves wrestling with, who's my kid gonna marry? I was shocked to find out that Jenny's dad had prayed for me since before Jenny was even born because he realized what I could have never realized even as an unbeliever, that that's the second biggest decision a person will make in life. First, do you follow Jesus, find forgiveness and live for the glory of God? But second, who you link your life with, this is huge. Who you marry is huge, either who you choose or who you, you accept as a marriage partner. Guys, this is, Nothing is bigger than this. And now, this is the issue. And one thing that's necessary for Jacob to walk forward in the blessing that God has for his life, one thing that's necessary, interestingly, is this. He listens to his mom and dad. Jacob has a listening heart. He listens to advice from his mom and dad. Do you? Would your heart be typified by a listening heart? Mom, dad, I mean, you said, it seems like there's a lot of women around here. 550 miles, you sure? I'm 77. <laughs> okay. He gets up and goes. It's a listening heart. Do you take advice from your parents when it comes to dating and marriage? Or do you just go, you kidding me? Back when they were dating, I don't know, they used like phone books and stuff. I'm like, I don't even know. They, they clearly are out of touch. Like they have nothing to say to me. Do you, is that your heart? Or are you like, no, no, tell me, tell me what I need to do. T tell me what was the best part about your dating and what do you regret the most? What advice do you have for me? I want to position myself to be a listener. Jacob listened 
He wasn't like Samson, remember him from the book of Judges, who was so impulsive, get me that woman. No. He was a listener. He listened. And he followed their advice all the way to what would be his spouse. In the midst of that listening, Abraham says, may God Almighty bless you. He confirms on him the covenant that had come from Abraham to Isaac and is now going to Jacob. Land, I will give you this land, descendants, all as numerous as the stars in the sky. Blessing, land, descendants, blessing. It's going to become yours, Jacob. And he steps into that and he listens. Guys, he had heard all the stories, I'm sure. He knew about the faith of Abraham, his grandpa, who left his homeland and God had provided for him. He knew about the crazy stories of how, oh, he used Abraham to rescue this guy in, in war. He knew about Sodom and Gomorrah and God bringing down fire and destroying people. He knew the faith of his dad and the faith of grandpa and, and dad who almost sacrificed his dad, but then God provided a ram. He knew about that faith. He, he heard stories of other people's faith. But the question was, Jacob, is your faith yours and is it alive? Or is it just dad's faith and grandpa's faith? Because up to this point, we don't see a pursuit of God just yet. You continue to contrast him sadly with Esau's awful, awful decision. If Jacob had a heart that listened, Esau had a heart that rebelled, which typifies you. A listening heart towards the advice of others, towards parents, towards authority, or rebellious heart. I already know what you're going to say before you even say it. You don't even need to continue. Listen as Esau is now described in Genesis 28, 6 through 9. The scripture continues, just pauses on Jacob's account, hits Esau. Esau... Look at this. Notice that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Paddan Aram to get a wife there. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Paddan Aram. Esau, realizing that his father Isaac disapproved of the Canaanite women. So Esau went to Ishmael and married. In addition to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, she was the sister of Nebaioth. Can you believe this? He realizes, dad, bless you. You're heading to marry someone that he wants you to marry. In response, I'm gonna totally rebel. In response to seeing what pleases dad, what pleases God, I am gonna go the other direction. That's his response. See, he's in that broken place where you just interpret everything and you go the other direction. That's, that's where he's at. It's wrong on so many levels. Already, we just noticed that he had married two other ladies. So now already he's a polygamist. Already he, he is immoral, mixing it up with these people who he shouldn't have been. And now he's like, you know what? I know that that pleases my father. I'm gonna do just the opposite. While Jacob had a heart that was leaning in and listening. Esau's heart was known for rebellion. And I just like, let's just pause to go, is there spite in your heart towards anyone? Do you find some people saying something and you're like, yeah, you know why I'm not gonna do that? No, I'm already smarter than that. Just because you said it, I'm going this way. 
What is that that is in our hearts that sometimes just wants to hear and rebel? Put, put a mask on my face, watch me not do it. You kidding me? Just silly things. Silly, easy, low-hanging fruit. You see the number on the sign you keep driving by? It's not a suggestion. It's called speed limit. You, just, you watch me. <laughs> what is it in us is like that? This was Esau's life. Irreverent, immoral, godless. You tell me this way, I'm going that way. Typified his life. Esau, what are you thinking? Proverbs 17, 25. A foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. Sadly, his parents knew this all so well. Interestingly, and we'll get there as we move through Genesis, it would be 20 years later, actually, God reconciles this broken relationship. There's a story of redemption coming 20 years in the making. We'll get there. Now I want to show you the critical day. I want to show you the critical day in Jacob's life where I think he comes and really begins his walk with God. Genesis 28, I'm going to start in verse 10, says this. Jacob left Beersheba, I mean, as his parents told him to, and went towards Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. I don't know what kind of like sleep number that stone is. <laughs> Holy cow, that's, I never noticed that. That's what you got for a pillow, a rock. Um, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky. And God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you. And wherever you go, I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone, took his pillow that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. A critical day in his life when he has an encounter with the living God. A critical day. He's leaving home for the first time. Maybe you remember that, the fear, the, the awkwardness, just the, the, the trauma in your heart of like, I'm, I'm leaving. God, be with me. I'm desperate. And he goes, he does it. And while he goes, God appears to him. I left home at 17. He's 77, a bit of a gap, but he leaves home and he encounters God. And who encounters who? Was it Jacob pursuing God or God pursuing Jacob? God pursued him. 
God pursued him. God's always the initiator in relationship with him. He's always the initiator in our lives. We can do no better than respond to the living God. He is giving him a vision of what it would be like to walk with God. God appears to him in this vision. God says, I'm the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the land, the descendants, and the blessing that I promised grandpa and that I promised your dad. Now, it's all becoming real to you. I'm not just your dad's God. I'm not just the God of your grandpa. I'm the God of Jacob. I'll be your God. And everything I said would be true for them. I'm making it true for you. Do you see this? It gets personal for him. It's no longer just mom's faith, dad's faith. Yep, tell me to go, put the goat skins on, whatever you tell me, value the right things, kind of morally trying to, no, God shows up. God appears to him. Guys, what Salt Church, what every one of us most desperately needs is God to show up for us. God to keep appearing for us. God to keep speaking to us. We need God. We need God, the initiator, the great leader of our souls to lead us. He breaks into Jacob's life here. We need the same thing. And today he might be trying in a, in a critical day kind of way to break into your world. Get you off maybe the path that you're on and get you going a different direction. Altogether, God shows up for him. I will be your God also, just like I was their God. He shows them a vision, an amazing vision. Angels going up and down on this staircase, closing the gap between earth and heaven. He has a vision. Interestingly, Nathaniel will see the same kind of vision. Jesus will speak of it towards him in John chapter 1 of, oh, angels going up and down. But he says that it's not no longer a staircase. It's me. It's me, I'm the connection between earth and heaven. This language will be used elsewhere, but he has this holy moment, and I want you to see his response. Because we've got to respond to the God who's speaking. And here's what happens. Look with me again at verse 16. He responds with worship. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I believe his response is just worship. Look, God's amazing. Wow, I'm afraid. It's like God was right here. I was sleeping. I didn't even know it. I was in the presence of God. Like God shows up. There's worship. There's a response in his heart. And then he does something crazy with his pillow. Did he catch that? His stone pillow, man, I'd have been like, I'm leaving that at the hotel. Like, I am going on. That's the worst night of sleep ever. No, he just does it differently. Look at verse 18. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. Marking the worst night of sleep of his life. No, he, he poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. And then he makes this vow. Guys, he, he takes his pillow. Get this. He's sleeping on a stone. He gets up. He'd encounter God. And he goes, this stone, this is the first stone in what I'm calling the city of God. God was here. He does a couple things with it. 
The, the first thing, the fact that he grabs a stone reminds us, doesn't it, of God bringing his people across the Jordan. Remember all these people going across, God's heaped up the waters holding it. And he says, before the water comes crashing down, go get some stones. Go get some stones from the middle of the river. And we're gonna pile them up. And for generations, kids are gonna go, what's the pile of rocks for? And you're gonna tell them, you see that? That'll remind you forever of the miracle God did when God showed up and led you across the water. It'll tell all generations, look what God did. Okay, he didn't have a journal to write it in and he couldn't post it. So this is what he does. He grabs a stone, I'm gonna mark it. I'm gonna mark this event in my life with God when God showed up in an unmistakable way, showed me something, showed me something awesome, changed the course of my life, a critical day with God. I'm grabbing this stone, what's my pillow? Now, bam, I'm renaming this whole town, Bethel. This stone, this is the beginning. This is the house of God. And then he pours oil on it. What's he doing pouring oil on a stone? Like wood-fired pizza? Like, what are you doing? Like, why the oil on the stone? Well, this is reminiscent of what was true in the Old Testament when they would consecrate something. When they'd say, this is holy, they'd pour oil on elements of the tabernacle, that uh, house that was going to be used to worship God. They even sprinkled oil on the, the priests who were going to serve in this. It was a way of saying, this is not a normal thing. This is for God. This is, this is holy. It's holy just means set apart. He's like, this stone, I'm pouring oil on it like this. This is set apart. This ain't any stone. This, this represents where God met with me. I'll forever be different. He'll come back to this place. This begins something for him. And then he shows his immaturity, doesn't he? <laughs> you see what he says next? Well, you know, like God just shows up in an amazing way, in an amazing way shows up to Jacob, and Jacob then says this. Well, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothes to wear, if I return safely to my father's family, well, then the Lord will be my God. Does that sound like how you want to be towards God? <laughs> Dude, God just gave you a vision in the night of angels going up and down from earth to heaven. What more do you need here? Like God just spoke to you. God just said, I will be your God. I will be with you. I will bring you back to this place. I will do it. And you're like, well, I mean, if you do. Do you waver in your faith too? I know I do. Sometimes like those rock solid promises of God and I'm like, well, maybe, I mean, if you can do it, God. And yet it's like God just absorbs the immaturity of his faith. You know, like a parent who's like, ah, you lunkhead. You know, like, ah, yeah, dumb as a post, but you know what, I'm gonna work with you. Like just... God just realizes if, 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 I mean, if doesn't go well with commitment, does it? Well, there at the altar, if you uh, promise to cook me food each day and uh, if you make the house great and if tomorrow is better than the day before, then I'll be your faithful husband until the day. I mean, it never goes well. Like you're supposed to just commit. He doesn't, he's got the if thing going. It's immature. It's where he's at. And God graciously works with where he's at as he makes his faith his own and he ends it with generosity. Did you catch that? At the end of that, 
he says in the very end, this stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house. And then he goes, and I'll give you a tenth of all that you give me. A tenth. We have seen this theme already in the book of Genesis. This tithe, this idea of, oh, 10%, I'll just give it to you. Guys, long, long, long before this was ever a command in the Bible, this was a demonstration of worship. This flowed from worship. This was just an illustration of what it looked like to encounter God. Remember Abraham so long ago? God was with him in that battle, conquered all those kings. Melchizedek, the, the mysterious high priest, the, the priest king comes out. Abraham just gives him a tenth of everything. Just there you go. Like this idea of giving generously, it seems like it just happens in response to those who really get it, who really encounter God. I hope you don't feel your arm ever twisted when it comes to giving. I hope when you, when you think of giving and generosity, you don't hear words like should, have to, ought to. Hope you don't feel arm twisting. I hope you hear an invitation towards worship. Because as I look at families, it's just those who are most mature in a family that work the hardest. I was there helping um, uh, Patrick and his family to move in. Patrick, Becca, the kids, like we were there just helping unload boxes. And I was watching the Hill family, Ryan and Danielle, and some of the kids were there. Who do you think worked the hardest in the family? Do you think it was Ryan and Danielle or do you think, well, Kinsley and Braylon were there? The other couple I didn't, I didn't see. Maybe they were inside. Who do you think worked the hardest, mom and dad or the kids? It's the parents. The parents, the most mature ones, they give the most. They go the hardest. This is how it is. And I think we need to begin to see maturing faith overflowing towards generosity. It was a practice of the New Testament church. Look at 1 Corinthians 16. Paul wrote this, now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside and um, set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers that no collections will need to be made when I come. Like it's just a practice of New Testament Christianity. People just took from what they had and they gave towards the work of God. Is that you? Does it overflow? Is it worship or is it? How much <laughs> do we think of our treasure in this world or in the one to come? I think it's cool, just that window into Jacob encountering God. It was, oh, man, one part of my response to God is, God, it's, it's yours. I mean, here you go. God brought Jacob to a critical day. And there are a number of people in this room. I get to see you all from my vantage point. I see small kids. I see married couples and individuals who want to be married and people who maybe they don't want to be. I, there's just a spectrum. But here's what I know. God has you here this morning, and it could be a critical day for you. When this is no longer the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and even Jacob, God who is the initiator, God who is the lover of the souls of men, women, and boys and girls, God who continues to reveal himself and elicit a response from us, he is breaking into our lives. What is he wanting to do? What is your next step with Jesus? Perhaps for some of you, it is, you need the forgiveness I found when I was 17. 
I finally realized, well, I realized for a long time I deserved God's judgment. That was actually very easy for me to realize. This is overwhelmed by my guilt, but I just realized God's so kind that today could be the day that I could ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And because he died on that cross in my place, absorbing the wrath of God that I deserved, and because he rose victoriously, the way was open, heaven was open, and God was welcoming me home to take me, though stained as I was by my sin, and make me pure as a driven snow, clean, white, holy in his sight. That could be you today. But you know what? Today could be a critical day because it's a day that in response to the grace of God, you're done with that habit of sin that has got you in its grip. Too long, too long you have been slaved to pornography. Too long you've been controlled by that. You fill in the blank. And you could have Jesus break that. Your pride keeps you from being open with others. Today could be the day where you finally share, I'm done with this. I'm done with this slavery. Too long have you kept it secret from your spouse about the affair that you had. You've never opened up because you thought she would never forgive. Oh, God will break that free also. Too long are we living in places of greed or we haven't forgiven someone. Maybe you've got someone in that jail cell in your heart. You know what I'm talking about. I was talking to a, a friend in here not long ago about how we put people in a place where we don't want to forgive them. No, 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 no. We look fine on the outside. We even dress up nice on a Sunday. And yet in our hearts, someone remains jailed in this cell in our hearts where we refuse to forgive them. What is it? that would empower you to open the door and forgive them? What is it that empowers a critical day in your life? It's the most critical day that happened when Jesus made a decision, I will come. I will live for them, I will die for them, and I will raise from the grave triumphantly. Because of Jesus, we respond to a God who continues to meet with us. God was faithful, God was faithful to Jacob. God met him, and God desires to meet with us. Let me pray for us that he would have his way fully in our hearts. Let me pray.